we said today, adds another idea that he's also the maker of all that is seen and unseen. He's not just maker of heaven and earth, but it also clarifies that there's nothing outside of heaven and earth, no other demigods or demiurges, that is, other, uh, you know, forces in the philosophical or theoretical world. Everything, every spiritual being, every physical thing was created by God. Um, and so today we're, we're covering Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And one of the things to keep in mind with the way that the, the Apostles' Creed is laid out is the Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian creed. We start off saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So we've covered God the Father. And then it goes on to say, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. But the, the um, subject verb there is implied as a continuation through the use of a conjunction, the word and. And so you can, you can substitute, I believe in God the Father Almighty and the maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ. You can also intentionally think about this, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That I believe there is implied. And it's important for us to actually, you know, to realize that we're saying, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the importance of uh, the Trinitarian nature of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed uh, in a little bit. But um, we're going to look at these three, uh, these six things today. Jesus Christ, that is Jesus and then Christ, what those two words mean separately, what they mean together as the phrase or name Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the phrase, his only son, and then we're going to look at the tack-on phrase at the end, our Lord. And um, it kind of sounds redundant, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And, you know, like we think his only son, yeah, the son of God is Jesus, and Jesus is the Christ, and Christ is Jesus, and it's all the same. And we just, in our minds, subconsciously, sometimes we just have Jesus equals Christ equals God's son equals our Lord, and they're all the same thing, but they're all distinct things, but they're all unified in his person. And it's important for us to know the distinction of what his name and those titles mean. Otherwise, the Apostles' Creed is unnecessarily redundant, and we should remove some of the words. Um, but it's not, and I hope to convince you fully of that today. After we look at the last phrase, our Lord, we're going we're gonna to talk about baptism for, for a minute or two, maybe five minutes. Um, so there's a phrase that people say, familiarity breeds contempt. And the notion of that is that as you're familiar with things, you start to take stuff for granted. Um, you, you know, you meet a girl, you get married, you then start to not appreciate her. Luckily, I haven't started doing that with Emily and I don't intend to. But you, you have seen it probably in your parents' relationships, maybe in your relationships with the, a member of the opposite sex, maybe in your relationships with just a member of the same sex, one of your friends, you know, guy friend or girls have their, what they call their girlfriends, which I still never accept that term. But, uh, you know, familiarity, the idea of being around something naturally causes you to begin to take things for granted. It's just human nature where uh, we lack um, the capacity to constantly appreciate everything in its beauty and detail. And so most of us just think Jesus Christ, Christ is like the last name of Jesus. Like my name's John Weiss 
And, uh, you know, John Paul Weiss and Jesus's name is Jesus Christ. If I was going to put him in my contacts, he would show up under C for Christ, comma, Jesus. That's not at all what his name means, but most of us kind of think that. And it's ridiculous, and that's why you're laughing, and I'm glad you're laughing. But it's important to know what his name means uh, both separately and together. So Jesus, the name in, is is an English word, which we have transliterated from the Greek, Jesus. Uh, I'm not a big fan of trying to pronounce Greek in front of you because I'm terrible at it. But his name is Jesus in the English, Jesus in the Greek, which is itself uh, a uh, translation from the word in Hebrew, Yeshua. And that word just simply means Jesus saves, uh, or that is Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Salvation comes from Yahweh. Um, If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, there was a character by the name of Joshua. His name is Joshua. That was changed, um, the first English translation to call him Joshua instead of Yeshua was uh, the King James Version. And if you go back beyond that uh, to any of the older texts, you'll see his name is Yeshua. And if you look at a Hebrew New Testament, that is a messianic believer. If you you know if you know a messianic believer, you go and ask them to show them uh, to show you one of their Bibles. You'll probably sometimes see Jesus's name in the Gospels as Yeshua. That's the same name, and um, we talked about this in the the Christ in the Old Testament series that Joshua or Yeshua in the Old Testament was a pointer forward to the person of Jesus. But his name, Jesus, just simply means Yahweh is salvation, or salvation comes from God. His name uh, is first told to us in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, 18 through 23. There's going to be a lot of scripture today. I hope you are okay with that. Um, If you're not, I hope you're okay with it by the end. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This phrase tells us a number of different things. First of all, the naming of Jesus was of heavenly origin. That is, an angel, a messenger of God, came and announced to Joseph what the child's name should be, And he said the child's name should be Jesus or Yeshua. The purpose of Jesus's life was to save his people from their sins. It says, you know, the the angel uh, who comes says that he will save his people. He will save his people. There's a possessive nature to these people. He's not just going to save any old people. He will save his people from their sins. The third thing this phrase uh, tells us is that his birth is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The the gospel writer of Matthew said that Jesus fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet, and that prophet, he doesn't name, but is the prophet Isaiah, um, 
he shall be called Emmanuel, that is God with us. And so there's this notion in Jewish, uh, well, in Old Covenant theology, not just Jewish theology, there's this notion of God being um, in our midst. And um, there's, there's this need for God to come and be in our midst and walk among us, but there's this problem God cannot dwell in the midst of sin. And so over and over again in the Old Covenant scriptures, you see God drawing near to his people. He brings the people and sanctifies them, but then they turn away from him and they're exiled. This is the grand arching theme of of, uh, redemptive history. And so Jesus, his life in the midst of his people is, Matthew is saying his life is the fulfillment of the entire redemptive history historical theme arc of the old covenant that God needs some way to come and be in his, in the midst of his people. Let's look at the word Christ. Christ simply means Messiah. So Jesus saves or Yahweh saves, and then we've got Messiah. Um, This word means anointed one. And we kind of think Messiah and Yahweh saves are the same. They're related, but it does mean something distinct. This, in Jewish thought, has no covenant with the Son of God. The Jewish believers are still waiting for their Messiah, and they do not expect him to be of a divine nature. They expect him to be a man uh, who will, um, you know, basically cause the world to know the name of Yahweh and worship him. And um, he'll, you know, throw out all the oppressors and reestablish and build the second or the third temple. And um, they're still waiting for this this person, um, who we recognize as being Christ. Um, they don't recognize Jesus as being the Messiah. But this, in Jewish thought, has no connection to divinity. This is a separate, distinct identity. There are two uh, two needs in the old covenant both the need for God to be in the midst of his people and the need for his people to be delivered from their oppressors. And those are separate, distinct ideas. This title in the scriptures is only referred to the promised deliverer who would reign on the throne of his father, David, and establish righteousness for his people and cause the earth to know the name Yahweh. So Jesus Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, what we are affirming is something that um, if you need more background on, see part zero of Christ in the Old Testament, the title of the message that I gave back then was Elemental Christology, which we're kind of summarizing here. This notion, when we say Jesus and Christ together, is that Jesus, the person, the work of Jesus Christ, is the unification of these two separate ideas, these two separate roles, these two separate needs, in one person. And so these things are not really accepted. The by uh, the Jewish believers that that at the time when Jesus was walking amongst them, uh, we touched on this last week, John 1, it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The way in which Jesus came to the people of Israel, uh, they didn't receive him as their Messiah nor as the Son of God. But the primary testimony of the gospel is the assertion and affirmation of this thought that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Jews have been waiting for. John 1, 29 through uh, 34, this is, this is that phrase that I was talking about earlier where you need to use your imagination. This is, this is an amazing moment. John the Baptist is uh, the he that this verse starts with. It says in verse 29, John 1, 
Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and be said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, let's use our imagination. John the Baptist is there. He's probably in the water. He's baptizing people. He sees this man walking and he says, behold. I mean, that's an earth-shattering moment. God in the flesh walking toward him. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist knew, and everyone knew, that John the Baptist was born before Jesus was born. And so what John the Baptist is saying here is that Jesus existed, he was before I was, he existed before his birth. This is an amazing assertion, and the testimony of John the Baptist is beginning to take on a real sweet, sweet taste. Verse 31, I myself did not know him But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that he is the Son of God. That final verse 34 is, is a kind of echoing of verse 29. John the Baptist saw with his eyes the incarnate Jesus Christ walking toward him, and the Holy Spirit opened John the Baptist's eyes to see that Jesus was not only the Lamb of God, that is the Messiah, as the second part of verse 29 says, but also the end of verse 34, the Son of God. John the Baptist has this revelation. The one who we've been waiting for is actually just Jesus. It's not two separate people. So this passage highlights a number of things. Jesus is the Messiah, not only of the Jewish people, but of the whole world. It says in verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just of Israel. So he's not just saving Israel, he's saving the world. Second thing it points out is that John the Baptist was only a prophet for one reason, was so that Jesus would be revealed to the people of Israel, to the the people of God. He says that in verse 33, um, sorry, the end of verse 31, I didn't know him, but for this purpose I came. The reason God sent me to baptize with water, teaching a message of repentance, was that he might be revealed to Israel. That's a pretty amazing thing for the guy, Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets uh, up up until the new covenant, for the greatest of all the prophets to say, my only job was to reveal Jesus to the house of Israel. What he's saying in that statement is massive. He's saying all the prophets before me, all of their jobs were only to reveal Jesus. And so when we pick up in the New New Testament scriptures in books like Hebrews, and it says, God who spoke through various times in various ways beforehand through the prophets has now been speaking through his son. That is built on this kind of logic here, this kind of event. And not only does John the Baptist say all of this, he also makes some extreme Trinitarian implications. He says that there was this one 
this this God, uh, this this person who we recognize as God the Father, who told John the Baptist to baptize someone, and he who you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon, he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist knows that that is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That is the Son of God, the person who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So we've covered Jesus separately, Christ separately, this phrase, Jesus Christ together. Let's turn to the second of the three uh, phrases in this uh, week's teaching, his only son. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus allows others to testify who he is, just like John the Baptist. We're going to look at two today. One is Nathaniel, um, John 1, 47 through 51. This is just a little bit after what we just read. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel makes two distinct, as we've been looking at, two distinct attributions or proclamations or declarations of who Jesus is, both as Christ, the Messiah, and Lord, or Emmanuel, that is God with us. So here when he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, we sometimes read that and just say, he's just saying that Jesus is Jesus. We don't really feel the full weight of the declaration that Nathaniel is making, and that the entire testimony of the Gospels continue to make over and over again. We're actually not going to cover a very large number of examples where someone says that Jesus is both Messiah and Emmanuel. But uh, we're going to look at Nathaniel and Peter. We've already seen John the Baptist, but we're going to leave out um, Martha, uh, Mary's statement to Jesus um, right before the, the raising of Lazarus. We're going to leave out uh, a number of important examples where this takes place. But this is the primary testimony of the Gospels. It's not just that Jesus healed. It's not just that he was a good man sent by God. It is that he is the fulfillment of these two separate desires for the Jewish people. He is the Messiah, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's look at what Peter says in Matthew sixteen, thirteen through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the point of this phrase in the Apostles' Creed. It's answering this question, who is Jesus? Last week, we talked about first-order questions, and the week before that, we talked about questions that an unbeliever might have when they walk into a, a church service, maybe our service or somewhere else. One of the questions is, who is this Jesus guy? And what does he have to do with my life? And why, you know, do I need to know about him? Do I need to accept him in some way? You know, what do I have to do about Jesus? This question is what Jesus is asking the disciples. Who do people, what's the, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about this guy, Jesus? Who is he? 
And the disciples answer. They say, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnate. Now, John the Baptist had been killed, so I'm explaining this. It doesn't say that. It said, some say John the Baptist. But the the thing there is that John the Baptist had been killed by Herod, and, um, you know, some people were saying that Jesus is really actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. And others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, and others say one of the prophets. That is, somehow one of the prophets have come back to life. Um he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So Jesus is, is asking his disciples, who have been with him for a long time now, what is your opinion of me? What do you have to say? And Peter, Simon Peter, this is like a grand slam in the ninth inning tied World Series seventh game. Is it seven games? Five? Seven. Five games? Seven, seven games? Seventh game? I, I need to do better with sports. This is a grand slam. Simon Peter replies, again, just like Nathaniel, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So not only do others speak of Jesus, but he himself makes claims to be the Son of God and the Messiah. The thing that's interesting about this point that Peter makes is uh, it's not of just primarily human revelation. Jesus says, this wasn't told to you by someone breathing in a body. This was told to you, this was revealed to you by the Father, and that means that this revelation comes for, by the way of the Holy Spirit. In John 10, verse 36 through 42, Jesus is being accused by some of the Pharisees. And, you know, he, he answers their accusation with a question. He says, Do you say of him who the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, notice here, this, this confrontation that, that Jesus has with the Pharisees, this isn't the result. This is the, like one of the many times they've tried to arrest him or capture him or kill him. And this isn't just because he healed somebody or performed some sort of spiritual deliverance, what you might call an exorcism on, on somebody. It's, it's not because he was going around and telling people their sins are forgiven, although there is one time that that happens, but the reason why they're angry that time is because he says, I'm the son of God and I have the power to forgive sins. But this isn't just a, we're angry at you for doing acts of mercy to the poor or helping out widows or healing someone on the Sabbath, they're angry at him because of this revelation and this thing that he says, I am the Son of God. So this notion, when we say his only Son, this is an exclusive claim that Jesus is making. He is the only revelation specifically sent by the Father in a full and complete way. And so in verse 39, it says again, immediately after he says that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father, he's equating himself to God here, and they seek to arrest him. 
It goes on to say in verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John has said about this man was true. And what they're saying in that phrase is, we totally agree that he is Christ and Emmanuel, that he's Messiah and Emmanuel, God and man in the flesh, the fulfillment of all messianic prophecy and the fulfillment of all desire and necessity for God to be in the midst of his people. And so when you see these phrases, you have to have some notion of what you've read previously. Because if you don't know that G- that John the Baptist was asserting Jesus to be both Christ and Lord, then you don't see that showing up in verse 41, when it says that everything that John said about this man is true. This means that these people, a lot of people uh, over across the Jordan, were becoming believers. They were becoming the first Christians. Eventually, they probably found their way into churches that were started after Acts 2. We won't get into that. But that's a massive thing to take place in across the Jordan. This is ultimately the reason, this revelation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, this is the reason that he was crucified. The elders and the scribes have a contention with him, and this is, this is why they condemn him to death. And notice, when we read this in a, in a minute, notice the two-pronged nature, that is, the two elements to the attack that the high priest attempts to make on Jesus during his trial. Verse 60, the high priest stood up, and came forward and questioned Jesus, do you have no answer? Uh, Before this, to give you some context, there were other accusations before this verse. What is it that these men are testifying against you? Verse 61, but he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? The high priest knew exactly what he was going for there. That was the nature of his question. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do you have witness uh, what what further need do you have do we have of any witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy, how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving to death. Before that time that Jesus said, yes, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds, before that, they had gone back and forth because there were a number of lying testimonies that had um, contradicted one another, and they were trying to catch Jesus in a, in a lie. And up until this time, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, they hadn't made up their mind, but after this, the verdict is sent. That this was the deciding factor in that trial. They decided, we don't like this idea that he's both Christ and Lord, and this is it. He should be crucified. Not only do the elders and the scribes make this assertion plain, but this also takes place in Jesus' crucifixion. Mark 15, 25 through 26, and then skipping for the sake of time, verse thir- all the way to 39. It was the third hour when they had crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, if you don't know that Christ means uh, Messiah or anointed one, the one who was, as we touched on at the beginning of this message, the one who was to be the promised deliverer, to sit on the throne of his father David, to be the king of the house of Israel, then you don't see 
that this says that Jesus is the Christ. He was crucified for claiming to be Christ. He was crucified for claiming to be the Messiah. And it says, and the inscription read of the charge against him, it read the king of the Jews. And then all the way at verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Larry's reading this morning of 1 Corinthians 3, 23, that is the, the primary passage uh, where all of this comes together. And we're going to turn our attention to this last phrase. We've covered Jesus, we've covered Christ, we've covered his only son, and now we need to, to look at what does it mean when we say in the Apostles' Creed the words, Our Lord. Uh, my, my dad highlighted this this morning in the... Um, in the Sunday school hour, that there's this controversy in evangelicalism today that you can just say the sinner's prayer and live in any way you want. I promise you, me and my dad, we're good friends, but we don't compare notes before this, uh, before we do our uh, talks. And I just think it's interesting to see what the Holy Spirit does week by week. I don't even like review his outlines beforehand. But this is the point of my talk today, that if you see Jesus as both Yahweh, God in the flesh, and the Messiah, then you cannot accept any other position than we owe our full allegiance to the King, Jesus. In Colossians 1, 3-23, Paul begins to expound upon the work of Jesus and how that's translated into salvation and what it implies for a set of expectations on the way that the Colossians, the, the people in Colossae, should live, the way that they should walk. Many think today that because I said a sinner's prayer, I can live like hell, and that is complete heresy. And if you are in that place, if you are living in any way you want, you are in a very dangerous place, as Paul says in this passage. First, let's turn to Colossians 1.9. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says that his apostolic team, when he says we, he's saying both, both me and my team, we pray for you without ceasing so that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That is, you need believers at Colossae, you need some understanding of what God's will is for your life. Well, why? Why do, why do I have to know that? He says in verse 10 and uh, verses 10 and 11, which I apparently don't have on the slides, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. So the, the question is, uh, like, why are they to walk this way? Why do they need a knowledge of his will? Think about it like this. Um, Employee-employer relationships. How many of us have a job or are looking for a job? Everybody? Almost everybody? Unless you're too young to be of working age? Uh, my boss went away for the week to uh, Portland last week. Um, and while 
while he's while the boss is gone, I'm in charge of two other guys. And that's a great responsibility, and it's fearful. It's extremely fearful, because when my boss gets back, if we don't have done the things that he wanted us to get done, we're in trouble. And we should be. Why does Paul say that, you know, they need to have a knowledge of his will? But think, think about it for a second. If I had no idea what my boss wanted, and he came back... Uh, then a it wouldn't get done, but also I wouldn't be an employee. I would be uh, I would be guilty of not paying attention during meetings, not answering my emails, not being a good worker, not having a relationship with my boss, and therefore having no reason to be continuing my employment at that company. And so Paul says, you need to have a knowledge of his will. This is what we're praying for: that you wouldn't be ignorant of God's intention for your life, which he brings out at the end. Um, but he says basically to the Colossians, you can't just walk around as if you're totally ignorant to what the will of God is, because if you do, uh, you're going to still live and act like you're in the kingdom of darkness when you're not. Um, and, and the intention here is to be, uh, extremely clear. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, Paul says, what's happened? Well, he has delivered us from the domain or dominion or kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're not in Christ, verse 14 says you don't have redemption. And so uh, my dad likes to say this phrase, which I love, God, you can't, you know, Jesus has to be your Lord. If he's not Lord uh, of all, then he's not Lord at all, which is true. And another thing that he says often is, um, he's saving us from being our own Lord. That's true. But another thing that he's doing, and my dad never denies this, but another thing that he's doing that you need to know is he is saving you from being enslaved to the prince of darkness. That's what this verse 13 says. And to, to think that you can just be your own person outside of uh, relationship to his people is, is a tragedy, and it should be amended. What reason are the Colossians to walk in a worthy manner because they no longer live in the kingdom of darkness? Paul is saying in this in these verses, don't be uncertain. Do not have any doubt as to what has taken place for you. And that's really the point of this sermon. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and you who once were alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. That's the reason you got saved, was to live and walk in a holy and blameless way. Further than that, without any reproach that can be made against you. That is the reason for the gospel. That is the point of redemptive history. And verse 23, he says, there's a condition here. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. If you do not continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, then this verse 22 has not happened for you. That's amazingly assurance shattering sometimes. And other times it's gloriously confirming when the Holy Spirit says, yes, son, daughter, this has happened for you, but this should shake you. And if it doesn't, then perhaps you're... Uh, more callous than you may know. 
So the question is, when we say, when we know that this is why we're saved, that Jesus would be our Lord, the question we have to ask ourselves, that we have to ask each other is, are we still living as if we're in the kingdom of darkness? Are you still doing evil deeds without any sort of check in your heart? Are you, are you doing things that are callousing your conscience against the Holy Spirit? Or are you aiming towards living and walking, making your conduct in a holy and blameless way? Not by your own power, not by your own striving, not in your own religious effort, but fully relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that happening for you? Are you attempting to do that? Do you know that you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? This may seem like a tangential thing to the Apostles' Creed, but this verse, this series of verses, Colossians uh, Colossians 1, 3 through 23, have extreme application to our series on the Apostles' Creed. The church for the last two millennia has used a formula in baptism, which many of us probably are foreign, uh, that formula is probably foreign to us, but this formula or this rite or this ceremony that is a prescription for how you should do a baptism, uh, this formula includes a number of question and answer uh, response, uh, call and response iterations. And when someone was going to come to be baptized, they would approach the church and, and go through a process of, of discipleship. And at some point, they would uh, either, you know, in, in modern day, we sign up for a baptism class, or, or they, would, they would communicate with their pastor or elder or bishop or whoever that I want to be baptized. And so when the baptismal ceremony came about, the church said, this is when you're converting from being an attendee of a church or someone who's a seeker or someone who's being uh, investigating Christianity to actually converting to Christ. Um, Paul makes it clear, baptism now saves you. And that it, baptism, in, we, we don't have time today to cover the effectualness of baptism and what it means, especially in light of all of the history behind the Reformation and the, the swath of literature that we'd have to climb through just to even begin to appreciate what the church has taught and believes about baptism. But this was recognized by the church as being the way that you go from being an outsider or a pagan or a part of another religion to being a Christian. And there were these questions that when you came to be baptized, the, uh, the pastor or, or bishop or elder, whoever was doing the, the baptism, they would ask you these questions, and then you would answer, yes, I do believe. So the, the, you know, one of them would be, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Yes, I do believe in God the Father Almighty. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Yes, I believe. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life? Yes, I believe. Um, at any point, if you don't believe in one of those people, the, one of those persons of the of the Trinity, they, they would end that. Um, if you're familiar with The Godfather, this is coming as no surprise. I, I don't like that movie. I don't like gory movies, and I don't like old movies. But uh, if you're if you're familiar with The Godfather, you've seen this. Or if you went to a Roman church, uh, a Roman Catholic church, as as a kid growing up, you probably know what's coming. Before any of these Trinitarian questions come about. There's one question that both the, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and, and the Lutherans and some Presbyterians still ask either the, the father or mother, the parents of the child or the sponsor of the child, or 
the, the individual can convert himself or herself. The question before all other questions is, do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his worship and all his angels and all his pomp? That is all of his trappings, all of his stuff. And if the convert did not answer, yes, I do renounce Satan, the baptism was over and they did not join the people of God. And we don't have to do that today. We can pray a sinner's prayer. We can, we can submit a card and put it in the mail and say, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. But without renunciation, there can be no transfer of out of darkness and into light. Some churches, I, in my study, I found that the Eastern Orthodox Church wants, to, wants you to be very sure. Their questions are Trinitarian as well. They ask you, do you renounce Satan three times? In the Roman church, uh, a few of the rites that I saw, there's two. they ask you twice. They want you to be really sure. Do you renounce Satan and all of his works? That is, all of, his, all of the evil stuff that he does uh, to you and, and attempts to do through you. But do you also renounce all of the worship of Satan? That is, all of the worship of idols. And if you don't renounce them, you can't turn to Christ. It's vital for us to know what we're saying when we, uh, when we say the Apostles' Creed. Without knowing what we're saying, we will be lax and with deficiency in our worship and in our appreciation and affection for Jesus. And taking the time to meditate on the Apostles' Creed and, and go over what these words mean um, will produce a deep, lasting admiration and communion with Jesus. Um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom of the creed. We ask you that we would see your son as manifested in the gospel as both Lord and Christ. We ask you that we would see it in the writings of Paul, in the prophecies of the old covenant, that we would see it in the Psalms and the Proverbs, that we would see every place that highlights Jesus as both Lord and Christ, that we would see it clear and we would be overcome. We ask you to give us the gift of Holy Spirit-enabled imagination while reading the scripture so that we would be caught up with the beauty of your story. God, we ask you that we would have, feel full effect when we recite the creed, when we are in those moments of our day where we're just meditating or, or thinking about stuff or resting that we would meditate on the words of the apostles creed and the deep profound concise theological truths contained in it and that would produce in us love for jesus and great righteous example living in jesus name